Are we rolling? I said all those things before we were rolling, so. All right, so we got a, we got a porterhouse of text tonight, big chunk. Um, so, excuse me? Roll. Yum, delicious. Uh, so we will be rolling through ch- most of chapter 12. Um, there is some confusion about the end of t- how the end of 12 fits. Um, so we'll get to that when we get to it. In the meantime, we'll pray uh, and then start in verse 1. Lord God, we come to you tonight and we thank you for this uh, time that we get to carve out of our day and our week to be together and to open your word together and to engage with you and your spirit and with each other. So we just pray, Lord, that you would be with us and that you would uh, illuminate the things that are of utmost importance in our lives as individuals, in our lives as a group, and help us to draw closer to you and to see you for who you truly are and what you desire from us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 12, chapter 12, verse 1. Um, At that time, Jesus uh, went through the grain field. So this is, in essence, this is a continuation of where he was going before. Um, so we had this big chunk of teaching, and now Matthew's telling us through this same movement uh, of time, they go into these grain fields uh, on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what, it is, what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read that what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? Now he entered, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath... The priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He, Jesus, said to them, which one of you has, who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a person than a sheep? So is, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, they're conspiring, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break." And a smoldering wick he will not quench, 
and he will bring justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand, or his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Oof. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment from this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more than evil, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So will it be with this evil generation. So, Jesus is continuing to teach, and now he shifts his focus on the teaching to uh, the Sabbath opportunity. Now, certainly Jesus is well aware of how the Sabbath functions and what the requirements are on the Sabbath. And he and his disciples are making this journey through the grain field. And his disciples start to pluck some heads and eat. Part of what we see here, which is interesting, is how Jesus uses similar language to what he uses in the Sermon on the Mount. 
So remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about, you have heard, and now I tell you this. Except in this case, he says, have you not read, which can, you know, the same idea of, have you not heard about these things? And so he's taking these preconceived notions of what the Pharisees have in their minds, and he is flipping it on its head. And that's one of the things that is very interesting as we go through this passage, is notice how frustrated, frustrated is not strong enough a word, how infuriated the Pharisees are with what Jesus is doing to their world. So infuriated that at the end of this, they go out and start plotting to kill Jesus, to have him destroyed. And it brings up this interesting question for us. What do we do when we encounter somebody who disrupts or disagrees with our preconceived ideas, beliefs about various things? So we have preconceived beliefs or we have constructed beliefs about various things, in particular religious things in this case, and we bump into somebody that has a different concept. What is our reaction? Defense. Defense. What did you say? Impeach? <laughs> I mean, just hypothetically speaking. <laughs> I mean, is it, our, is it our posture typically to lean in and say, convince me that I'm wrong. I'm listening. No, we fight back and we let them know how stupid they are, how idiotic they are, how their position is terribly wrong or how we're right because certainty is, is this great comfort to us. And so we live in this world where without certainty we feel like we are you know, a ship that has lost its mooring and we're floating throughout the sea of chaos and belief. Rather than leaning into, as Adam Grant talks about, the desire to find out false beliefs. When you encounter a position that you've held and realize that you're wrong, is the thought, I'm so glad I found that out. No, no almost never. We want to disprove, even though we know that we have been shown that we have held a false belief. And the Pharisees go as far as saying, this person has so upended our structure and our belief system that he must be killed. Remember last week, John's people come to Jesus because John's in jail. And it's absolutely fascinating, this podcast that I listen to almost every single week. They were talking about that passage this week, and I was like, thank you, Holy Spirit. John's people have this concept and this idea of what the Messiah is to be. Jesus comes, and he's the opposite. The Pharisees have this idea of what a Messiah will be. And Jesus is the opposite. 
And so what is the response? Rejection by some, confusion by others, and, and a plot to kill him. So what do we do when we encounter a belief out of Scripture that challenges our deep-seated beliefs? Do we press in and seek greater understanding from Scripture? Or do we dig in and try to explain how Scripture is wrong? The Pharisees don't know what to do. We don't like, for the most part, to learn that we have held a wrong belief. And yet, if we have held a wrong belief, I think we would want to know it so we could correct that belief. But rather than looking for errors in our belief structure, we seek to hold def defensible positions no matter what the cost of relationship, of our own sanity, of our own intelligence. How often is it that we dig in to an irrational belief because we don't want to admit that we're wrong? The Pharisees do not want to admit that they are wrong, and so they desire to kill Jesus. And what is it that they're wrong about? They're wrong about the Sabbath. Which brings up this question of how has our experience with the Sabbath transpired throughout our lives? And I know for some of us, the Sabbath was was one of the most bitter days that exist. I have friends that grew up where on Sunday, mom made all the food on Saturday night because on Sunday you did nothing. Literally nothing. You went to church, then you did nothing, then you went to church, then you did nothing. Except listen to your friends out running in the streets living like pagans, and you thought, who needs heaven? I just want to go play baseball. <laughs> My one friend, his parents would drive the long way to church so that they didn't have to go buy McDonald's because they didn't want to see somebody working on a Sunday. It was scandalous. And for others, Sunday is like free day. Who cares? Church, yeah, Maybe. I mean, if it fits within my schedule and doesn't affect, you know, Vikings game, lake day, brunch reservations, my night before. I mean, John just talked about it last week or this on Sunday in his face story. Yeah, my Saturday is more important than my Sunday morning. So Saturday night trumps Sunday morning. So the Sabbath, whatever. And Jesus is is coming directly at the Pharisees' understanding of what the Sabbath is and how it functions. And I know we have this tendency, and we try and thread this needle between what James McDonald, for all his faults, has some good things, between legalism and license. Legalism says, you know, here's the list of things that you can and cannot do. And license says, there's no list. <laughs> Do whatever you want. And so we have to try and thread this needle around the Sabbath 
as we look at the words of Jesus, as we look at Scripture as a whole, how fa- A.J. Swoboda points this out in his book, Subversive Sabbath, how fascinating is it that we drill down so hard on some of the Ten Commandments and others were like, yeah, but that doesn't really apply. <laughs> we're like, murder, Ten Commandments, yep, totally. Adultery, yep, totally. Sabbath, yeah, that's outdated. <laughs> Some of us are like, that's in the Ten Commandments? Yep. <laughs> but what's interesting is Jesus here is taking, just like he does in the Sermon on the Mount, he's taking these long-standing beliefs and, and teachings, and he's twisting them in a particular way not to, not to manipulate them for his benefit, but to shift how we see them. Because what he's doing on the Sabbath is producing quality things. Notice he quotes again. Remember back in 9.13, he's quoting uh, from Hosea. And he told them back then in 9, you got to figure out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He desires that what we do on the Sabbath is to share mercy with one another and not to practice ritual religious piety. In essence, if what we're doing with our Sabbath is religious practice without mercy, then we're missing the point on what the Sabbath is meant for. Because the Sabbath is not intended strictly for religious practices. And Jesus breaks that apart by talking about these various things. Talking about those who work in, in verse 5, those who work in the temple. Are they profaning the Sabbath? No. And then they go into the synagogue and they have this opportunity. Now, it was lawful to do life-saving measures on the Sabbath. So this individual who has this withered hand, who clearly is not in a life-saving problem, he's not going to die because he has a withered hand. He's had this withered hand for a very long time. And Jesus takes... And he totally upends. He goes all the way back. Remember when we talked about the lilies of the field and and the sparrows and how God cares more about those than he, he cares about them so much and he cares about us even more than that. He takes that same imagery and he uses it again here. And he says, if you care about this sheep... How much more value is there in a human being than in a sheep? How much more value is there in the restoration of a human being than in the rescue of a sheep? And notice then Jesus heals the man. And we have this vision of restoration. And I know we... 
that sometimes it just feels like we just keep saying the same things. Again, I didn't write this. Jesus keeps doing the same thing to drive home the point that the kingdom of God, when it breaks in, there is restoration. There is bringing back to life. And he compares it to the other hand that is fully functioning. So we have a life in this imagery of twisted by sin and Jesus takes and he heals it and he brings it back to full health. This imagery of that is what it looks like to encounter Jesus Christ. This restoration. And rather than celebrating, they go out and conspire to destroy him. And then Matthew throws in this very interesting little bit, you know, this kind of broad sweeping narrative piece that they go away from there and and, and he heals all these people. You know, it's like we've gotten so used to him healing all the people that we just gloss right over it. Yep, he healed all the people. And then he quotes Isaiah. And he gives this picture of Jesus that is absolutely majestic. Who is this Jesus? First, he's going to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Scandalous. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. What's your favorite Jesus? Right, because we all have a Jesus that we we prefer. And last week when we were at market, I took some photos of like some terrible baby Jesuses in the manger. Like whoever designed this baby Jesus, fired. Like terrible. Baby Jesus did not have bright blue eyes, nor did he look like he was a (laughs) three-year-old. He was a baby. But how do we view who Jesus is? Do we take and do we say, my Jesus is the revelation Jesus who's riding on the horse with the big tattoo and the big sword? Typically, our favorite Jesus is the table-flipping Jesus. I know we've talked about this before. My Jesus is angry, and he flips over tables, and he clears rooms out. That's my Jesus. Shameless plug for the reading group. If you haven't started, I'm only three chapters in, so you're not that far behind. They're short chapters. But the, the book before Deeper is this Gentle and Lowly, Same guy. And he says this. He says, in other words, let me back up. We are simply seeking to follow the biblical witness in speaking of Christ's heart of affection towards sinners and sufferers. In other words, if there appears to be some sense of disproportion 
in the Bible's portrait of Christ, then let us accordingly disproportionate. Let us be accordingly disproportionate. Better to be biblical than artificially balanced. If we pile up all of who Jesus is in Scripture, the scales tip to a passive, gentle, loving, countercultural, radical lover of people. That is the overwhelming majority of Scripture about Jesus. Then over here, there's a small amount of Jesus being upset. Doing things that seem to lash out. So, if we're going to be disproportionate, we want to be disproportionate in relation to what the biblical text says about Jesus. Matthew tells us this is who Jesus is. Isaiah prophesied about who this Messiah will be. This is him, and this is what he looks like. He is so gentle that when he encountered, and I would love it if somebody would say, but this is poetry. Amen. Yes, it is. This is not literal. This is not literal. It's Hebrew poetry. That's what he's quoting. That's why it looks different. That's important. But the image, not but, and the image that is brought up is a person who doesn't even break the wounded reed that is so soft and already wants to be broken. The wick that is like, you know, you could hear it, right? You light a candle that's like, like it's probably done, but I mean, I think it, yeah, we could probably get a little bit more out of it. So you light it. Then you can hear it like flickering. You're like, that thing's about to go out. He doesn't even quench that wick. He is so soft and gentle. We don't like that Jesus. Or we have a hard time with that Jesus. Just last week, he says, take up your cross. As we get to the crucifixion, I don't think it's a spoiler alert. Jesus doesn't fight back. So is our view and understanding of Jesus a creation of culture and our own desires, or is it founded in the overwhelming evidence of Scripture? And then he goes on and he encounters this demon-oppressed individual who can neither speak nor see, and he heals him. And again, the Pharisees accuse him of what? We've talked about this before, right? This is not the first time this has come up. The only way you can cast out demons is because you are, thank you, Dana Carvey, Satan. 
and Jesus turns it on their head. And he says, if that was the case, then what are you all doing? And he talks about this idea of tying up the strong man, which is the theme that comes throughout the Gospel of Mark. And he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Then he gets into this thing that for some of us is like terrifying. He says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And then he doubles down and he says, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Typically, if we're asking, am I at risk of doing this? We're not at risk of doing that. Notice what Jesus is saying. He's just had this encounter with the Pharisees. They go off to kill him. They come back into the story, and they accuse him of being Satan. And he gives them a warning. And he says, you can come at me all you want. You can question me all you want. I'm the first option. When the Holy Spirit comes and you choose to reject the Holy Spirit, that's your last option. He says, you can do whatever you want against me. Hint, hint. If you want to kill me, that's your option. When the Holy Spirit comes, there's no more options. So, if you reject the Holy Spirit, now he's teaching this to the Pharisees, if you reject the Holy Spirit, there's not a third option. It's like the old phrase, like, wait till your father gets home. Jesus is like, Wait till the Holy Spirit comes because that's your last option. If you don't repent with the Holy Spirit, there's no more options. So Jesus gives us, gives the the first century hearers this warning about him and they can treat him however they want and they will be forgiven, but the Holy Spirit is the last option. And I don't think I have to point out the Holy Spirit is our only option. (laughs) Again, preaching to the choir. I know. There's so much ink spilt over this. What does this mean? And how does this happen? And and, and is this me? And If we're seeking Christ, then we don't have to worry about this. If we're not seeking Christ, that becomes a different conversation. And then, he repeats himself yet again. Remember back to this conversation about fruit and the tree? He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Following Christ produces good fruit. Someone who's not following Christ cannot produce Christ-like fruit. Then 
does this sound familiar? You brood of vipers. Remember all the way back to John the Baptist? This came up with John the Baptist back in chapter 3. And now Jesus is taking the words of John the Baptist and re-engaging them in the brains of those who are listening. You think you are good because of what you speak, but you are evil. He is speaking directly to the Pharisees. And he says, these words that you say without actions mean nothing. Because that is this long engagement that he's had with the Pharisees. They're saying all the right things. They think they're doing all the right things. And yet, what they're saying and what they're doing is going to lead to destruction and lead them to judgment. And so the Pharisees say, okay, okay, maybe if you just gave us a sign, then we would believe. Like, that's not a new thing. <laughs> Remember back uh, last year when we were talking in the book of Judges? And we are like, oh, please, no, no, no. Let's not go back there. Gideon lays out the fleece. He wants a sign. He wants another sign, all that sort of thing. So this idea of a sign is not necessarily new. And Jesus' response is less than soft. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, fairness in conversation, one of the spe- the first speaker at the CPT conference this fall, the Uh, Center for Pastor Theologians, loves Seacrest. She's a biblical scholar. She's written this book um, that's on my desk. And she did a whole talk about this exact set of verses. (laughs) And so I cannot do it justice because that, well, I told you that I would just basically be quoting her. And and so that would be a waste of your time. If, If you are interested, I can, I think it's okay for me to give you the she watch it it's super good but she unearths she unpacks this whole discussion around historical interpretations of Jonah and why does Jesus and Jonah become this integrated connection because the the sign of Jonah comes up later in the gospel of Matthew and what is it what is the connection that exists between Jonah and Jesus And what's fascinating that she brings up is this concept of who does Jonah go to? To the Ninevites, who are bad. Why are they bad? (laughs) They all have subscriptions to, never mind. Why are they so bad? It's not a big book. If you ever want to read it, 
You can read it real quick. What is the problem with the Ninevites? Why does Jonah not want to go to the Ninevites? And they are not what? They're not Jews. Yes, bingo. So they're these cruel, mean, oppressive Gentiles. And who are they being cruel and mean and oppressive to? The Jews. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go over to those people who are oppressing you. And I want you to deliver the good news to them so that they will repent and I will save them. Jonah isn't about a big fish. It's about God's desire to break into the world to non-Jews. Okay? <laughs> like, really? Again, short little book. Easy to read. Jonah doesn't want to go to his oppressor and preach deliverance. Jonah has the opportunity the command of God to go to the meanest, nastiest, filthiest people that he could ever imagine. Not to kill them, to, to bring them life. How incredible is that? And Jonah says, no, thank you. Not interested. We ever been there? God lays somebody on our heart, somebody that's terrible. We deem them as less than. That person is unworthy of, of being. In fact, I don't want to share the good news because I'm afraid that they will receive Christ. Then I'll have to deal with them in heaven. Whew. No, thank you. What did Matthew just say about Jesus? And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. See that? Jesus goes and brings hope to the Gentiles. Jonah goes and brings hope to the Gentiles. Jesus and Jonah are this connected link. Who kills Jesus? The people he's preaching to. And when we talk about this idea of, you know, Chuck brought it up. He asked this question about are there modern day prophets? Yes, there are. Now, it's not, as I mentioned, you know, like the going to Canada and talking about the end of the world prophecies. It's the looking at what has happened and talking about how God is working. Not this foretelling as in seven days from now we're going to have something happen. It's looking at all these things that have happened, including in Scripture. This is what God is doing. So Jesus is a prophet in the same way that Jonah is a prophet to the people who will reject him.
And we see this connection, and so often it's the case, and again, love does this huge historical uh, discussion about how this has been interpreted previously. You know, this idea of three days and three days, well, what's the problem with that? What's the number one distinction between Jonah in the fish and Jesus in the ground? Jonah's alive, yes! And so if we say, no, the connection between Jesus and Jonah is three days in the fish and three, you're like, I thought it was a whale. We've thought a lot of things that we were wrong about. Based on mammalian digestive systems, Jonah wouldn't have survived three days in a male ma- mammal's belly, but he could have been a fish. Think about that. Like, it's a miracle. Yeah, okay. Jesus is dead. And if Jesus isn't dead in the ground, then the resurrection doesn't happen. And so that connection falls apart. So what else is the connection between Jesus and Jonah? Notice this. Verse 41. The individuals of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Remember last week, there was the, the warning against, uh, against these people that are unwilling to repent. We've had this for a few weeks now. These you know, nationalistic comparisons, Tyre and Sidon and those things, it, it'd be better for, for individuals. Now, Jesus says that the people of Nineveh, the worst, terrible individuals that, that the Jews could have ever imagined at that point, are speaking back to the people that are hearing these words of Jesus saying, repent, repent, repent. And then we get this idea that Jesus is greater than Solomon, which again for the Jews would have been just... Then we get this very clear little ending to this major teaching. When the clean, unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first, so will it be with this evil generation. This reminds me of so many different things. One being, you know, now our kids are, well, one's technically an adult and one's almost an adult. Back in the day, they'd go to bed. Living room would be a disaster. Like, all right, kids are in bed. Let's just clean up real quick. We'll put all the little people back where they need to go, and we'll, you know, get all the figurines, like, in the right spots, and that way when they wake up, everything will be in the right spot, and it'll just be beautiful, and they'll be ready to play, and then then they'll see how it all goes back together. (laughs) 
we'll organize the Legos in especially colored. And then, then when they put the Legos away, they break them down. They'll put them in the right spots. And they'll keep the, the tires in this box and, you know, and all this. You go to bed and you wake up the next morning. And the Tasmanian devil has arrived. And everything is just like, wow. This imagery is Jesus comes in and he breaks in. And he cleans everything up. He delivers people from demon possession. He provides them with a clean slate. And what do they do? Nothing. They do absolutely nothing. So that when they come against opposition in the future, what happens is not only worse, it's seven times worse. Because it's one thing to come to faith in Christ, you know, break through the threshold, put on the new white coat, woo! But if there is no follow-up, if there is no filling with, then there's emptiness. And there's openness to even worse opportunities that exist. Because it implies that once Jesus has set things right, there is a, an opportunity to fill with the things of Christ. That's why we talk about these things like outreach and then spiritual formation. Because we are vessels. We are basically walking garages. You fill your garage with as much space as your garage will hold. I mean, can I get an amen? And then some. And once that's full, you build a pole barn. And you fill that. So Jesus gives this imagery of he has done the work to set the pathway towards spiritual growth that we call discipleship. The question is, what then is being done? Because if nothing is done, just a little bit ago, Jesus heals this man, cleanses him of the demon that is in him. Jesus is warning against not continuing to follow him. And so that's why we talk and talk and talk about this word discipleship, to grow in Christ. When we bring somebody to Christ, okay, then we're good. No, it's a coming alongside and walking with. All of y'all in here have, have a desire to walk in Christ. We all do. That's why we're here. The question is, who are the other people in our lives that we could be coming alongside and saying, let's do this together. Let's walk in Christ together. Let's grow in this together. So often, though, we think of faith as this individual thing. But it's not. It's about the body 
coming together. And so we bring somebody in, outreach. Spiritual formation isn't up to just the individual. It's up to us coming alongside of them and saying, you come in the door and you come say yes to Jesus and you're like, now what? What do I do now? Well, just read your Bible and come to Sunday mornings. You'll be fine. Mm. Rather than saying, let's walk together. Let's do this thing together. And then that person knows what that looks like. And then they bring a friend with them. And then they say, okay, now what? Let's do this thing together. And now we have this wonderful spider web of discipleship that is happening. That's what spiritual formation looks like. And that's what servant leadership looks like, coming together. And we are to be a group of disciples making more disciples. Seems like I've read that someplace. And that's the imagery that we have in this terribly obscure phrasing that Jesus says, once the house is clean, once I have come in and, and taken care of some things, don't just leave it vacant because you're going to fill it with something. All right. We can go to our group.